Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Kill Me With Kindness, a Mike Lanson mystery written by J. Harvey Bond. A crime reporter investigates the case of the deadly do-gooder. While Mike Lanson, reporter for the Gazette, was checking up on Clarence Proust, director of the Anti-Vice League, Proust was slain. There was a striptease dancer named Lucy who thought that maybe she murdered him. The police thought so too, but Mike didn't, so he helped her hide out, hoping for the bigger story to break. All the gangsters in town didn't care who killed whom. All they wanted were the blackmail files Lucy had in hiding with her. With everyone on the merry-go-round of murder, Mike knew the odds were high against the real kingpin of crime showing his head but he was willing to risk his own, as well as Lucy's, to headline that story. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Kill Me With Kindness. Chapter 1 I climbed a dark stairway which led off the street to the second floor of an old store building on Jefferson Avenue near 68th Street. At the top was a long, ill-lighted hall lined with low-rent, lighthouse-keeping rooms. As I looked around for apartment number three, a baby bawled in one of the rooms. I smelled onions and cabbage cooking. Number three was the second door from the front of the building on my left as I came up the stairs. The name Mabel McGuire was crudely hand-lettered on a card in a holder on the door frame. This was the babe I wanted to talk to. I'd tried to reach her by phone, but she wasn't listed. No phone. Mabel McGuire was the offstage name of a fourth-rate stripper the cops had hauled in from the Blockbuster Bar on West 10th Street a week or two ago. I knocked on her door. When the door opened, I hardly recognized her with her clothes on. Lucrezia. That was the name she appeared under, was fully dressed in a gondola outfit, tight white pants, a loosely knit sweater. She had a towel wrapped around her head like a turban to hide her hairdo in the making, but I knew her hair was jet black. Her looks were nice. This was the kind of assignment any reporter would feel was worthwhile. Miss McGuire? I asked. Yeah. Her voice was low and husky. It told me that she liked the half of the human race that wore pants. I'm Mike Lawson of the Gazette, I told her, edging forward so she couldn't slam the door. I didn't think she would, but you never can tell. My God, a reporter. Her voice got a little shrill, but it still was pleasant. I've had just about enough of reporters. Do you have to run a continued story about me? Sorry, Miss McGuire, I said, but reporters have livings to make. I'm not here on a story now, just checking up on a few things. Can I come in? She hesitated, then stepped back. All right. You're half in already, but I'd like to know first if you're really a reporter. For all I know, you're Jack the Ripper. I grinned and pulled out my identification card. I'm harmless, I said. I'll talk to you here if you wish, and if you don't care about nosy neighbors. The door to number five was opening a crack. Come in, I'm eating breakfast. I looked around the room as I entered. It was homey and pleasant, much different than I expected. She had a pretty blue spread on her bed, blue drapes and white furniture. Cheap, but neat. A table near the hot plate had a coffee cup and a plate with a couple of pieces of toast on it. 
She sat down and I sat across from her on a white kitchen chair. Coffee? Fetch a cup off the shelf and I'll give you some. No, thanks, I said. Just information. For free, I suppose. You want my life story? I was born in Iowa, learned to dance in Chicago, and came to Creston three years ago with a road show that went busted. You ruined my career when you printed my picture, and now I've got another job. I, my new job's not creative, like dancing, but I get paid. I prefer art. Dancing is an art, even without clothes. More without than with, because you're conditioned against nakedness, and you've got to learn to control your timidity. I understand, but of course you understand. You're creative, too. You're a writer. I write, too. Poetry. Let me read you some. She jumped up, went to a chest of drawers, and pulled out a sheet of paper. She read as she returned to the table. Strippers are maidens who are seldom forlorn. They dance before menfolk the way they were born. On top of a bar before lecherous eyes, they bump and they grind for amusement of guys. At that point, I couldn't help laughing. It's not supposed to be funny, she said with a frown. There's more some other time, ma'am, I said. Right now, I'm, would your paper print my poems? She leaned forward, almost dipping her right besweatered bosom in the coffee. Newspapers go more for prose, I said. She had dark blue eyes, high cheekbones, a straight but pretty nose, and firm, full lips. Edgar Guest wrote poetry for newspapers, she said. He was a special case, I told her. You don't like poetry because you're skinny, she said. Skinny men are sad and cynical. Sometimes they're busy, I said. Although I was very sorry I was working and sorrier still that I was conscientious. Do you know a man named Clarence Proust? She opened her mouth to say something and then closed it again. Her eyes fixed mine for a moment. Then she picked up a piece of toast and nibbled on it. I got the idea she was stalling. I know a lot of guys, she said finally. Am I supposed to know him? I shrugged. He's the executive director of the Citizens Anti-Vice League, the outfit that signed the complaint on striptease acts at the Blockbuster Bar. What would I have to do with a guy like that, Mr. Lanson? Is that your name? Mike, if you can't remember the last name, I said, nodding. I thought maybe you might have seen the man talking to Leonard Audell, your boss, before the bar was raided. Gee, Mike, a lot of people talk to Lenny. Well, if you don't know Proust, I don't suppose you can help me, I said. I had to be tactful. Colonel Tanner had his suspicions about Proust, but they were only suspicions. Unless we found somebody willing to talk, we couldn't very well expose him as the kind of reformer who puts the squeeze on small-time operators. Sorry I can't help you, she said. But I'm sure glad you called. I hardly ever have company, living odd hours like I do. The women in this place are crumbs, and no men at all. I'm sad and skinny, I said. I'm not good company. As I rose from my chair, she looked up at me. Don't take my cracks to heart and run off, honey. I like tall, skinny men. You'd make a good Gary Cooper if you were about 30 years older. Yep, I said. But I've got to go because I'm working. You work every day? I'm off one day a week. Next week it's Monday. Gee, Monday's my day off too. I work nights, you know. Doesn't leave a girl much time to run around. We'll have to get together Monday night, 
Shucks, I wasn't hinting, but it's a good idea. Okay, pick you up at eight. I'll be waiting for you, honey. Can you find your way out? Yep, I said, still trying to be Gary Cooper. So long, Mabel. Don't call me Mabel. I hate that name. Call me Lucy. Mike. Okay, Lucy. So long. I went back to my car, already anticipating Monday night. This was Wednesday, five days. I drove across town, stopping on the way to have lunch and to call Hank, so that he wouldn't think I was taking the day off. Hank Newcomb is my city editor, and I'll tell you more about him later. My call on Lucy had been the fifth that morning concerning Clarence Proust. Everyone I'd talked to had praised him to the skies or remained noncommittal. But Colonel Tanner was convinced that Clarence Proust was a shakedown artist. Colonel Gordon Curran Tanner, editor and publisher of the Gazette and its morning twin, the Globe, had been asked by Proust to wage war on sin and vice in Creston. Colonel Tanner does not approve of large-scale sin and vice, but he can take small amounts of it in his stride. And he is willing to let the police take care of the rest as long as they seem to be doing their duty. But Proust was executive director of an organization called the Citizens Anti-Vice League of which a large group of prominent people were members. Most of the membership was sincere, a few fanatical and others not so concerned. Perhaps some belonged for political or selfish reasons, but nevertheless, the membership was imposing. And when the newspapers of Creston were asked to help them crusade, the request could not be taken lightly. Tanner had had reporters, including me, check up on the club's activities. During the past year, Proust had signed 26 complaints against small-time operators, charging them with operating at illegal hours, taking bets, operating slot machines, promoting striptease shows, and chiseling in any number of ways. It had also come to the colonel's attention that several joints in Creston and on the outskirts of town, which really operated on a large scale, had not been bothered. This, plus some rumors that Proust could be had, had sent the colonel in the direction of reforming the reformers. He had found that large sums had been subscribed to the committee, which had expenses that were not large. While the books of the organization had been audited, the colonel felt that Proust might have found ways to dip his hands into the treasury for one reason or another. But I'd found out nothing thus far. I drove up in front of a nice little ranch house in the University Hills section of town. It was the home of Manton Arkwright, a wealthy investor who spent most of his leisure time being public-spirited. He handled estates and things to make a living. A young woman, very pretty, answered the door. Like the girl I'd seen before lunch, this one had black hair, but the one I was seeing now was older, about my age, although it's unsafe to judge a woman's age. Still, there was a bloom of maturity that I liked in her face and manner and she was well-poised and gracious. Classy's the word. Miss Arkwright, I asked. Mrs. Arkwright, she said with a smile. Mrs. Manton Arkwright? I showed my surprise. I thought she was Manton Arkwright's daughter. He was in his 50s. This babe was at least 25 years younger. I'm Mike Lanson of the Gazette, I said when I had recovered. Oh, yes, Mr. Lanson she said warmly. Manton told me to expect you this afternoon, but I understood you'd be here later. He did too, I suppose, because he hasn't returned from downtown yet. He usually has lunch at his club. Won't you come in? It was almost one thirty, and I didn't think I'd have to wait long. 
Besides, it would be nice work waiting with this dame. Yes, I'll wait, I said. I followed her into the house. It was modern in every way. She took me into a large living room, told me to sit on the divan, and went to a portable bar in the corner. Can I fix you a drink? A small one, I said. It was too soon after lunch to enjoy a drink, but I have no objection to a drink at any time. Can I help you? Goodness, mixing drinks is about the only exercise I get. Bourbon or scotch? I told her bourbon and water, and she mixed the drinks. She came over and sat down beside me. She was dressed in slacks with a short-sleeved blouse. She was small and bosomy, stacked like everything. I hope you don't mind my costume, she said, noticing my gaze. I didn't expect to receive you. I don't mind in the least, I said. Tell me about newspaper work. It must be so interesting. It's always new and different, I said. She put her drink down on the coffee table and moved over close beside me. You must meet all kinds of people. My life is so dull most of the time. You don't look dull, I said. Thanks. She ran her fingers along my arm. Do you have a city editor who swears at you? Do you make love to all the pretty girls? Do you get drunk every day? You've been going to the movies, I said. My city editor swears at me, but he'd swear at his mother. I also made love when I had the opportunity, but I seldom got drunk because I hate hangovers. Movies exaggerate. She snuggled close. Make love to me, she said. It was so startling and sudden that I didn't know what to think. I was scared. I'm not used to having women melt in my arms 10 minutes after I meet them. But I had to be polite. I put my arm around her, pulled her close, and gave her a friendly kiss. I spilled my drink, which was still in my hand. Then I set it down and discovered that she was laughing. Not that way, she said, like this. And I was suddenly engulfed in a woman's arms, smothered with kisses. I didn't fight it, of course, but I was certainly confused and more than a little bit bothered. See, I knew the movies weren't exaggerating, she said. I felt limp and embarrassed and incompetent, irrelevant and almost immaterial. Do you do this to all your guests? Just the ones I like, she said. That's very nice, Mr. Lanson. I think we'll have to continue this some other time. Yes, I said, with a little warning. You're cute. What's your first name? Mike, I said. I'd told her before. Mine's Martha. She got up, brushed the spot where my drink had spilled, then looked out the window. Here comes Manton now. Better rub the lipstick off your face. He won't notice, but I'm always afraid he will. I used my handkerchief and tried to compose myself while she went to the door and threw herself into the arms of a portly, gray-haired man who entered. Now she turned around and pulled him by the arm toward me. Manton, she said. This is Mike Lanson, the reporter you expected. He just spilled his drink. Manton Arkwright smiled as I rose and shook his hand. He was heavyset and had a noticeable bay. He was not overly stout for a man of his age. He wore rimless glasses, and the mustache on his upper lip was pure white. Clumsy of me, I said, pointing to the wet spot on the divan. Martha is sometimes distracting, he said. Colonel Tanner gave me an inkling of the reason for your visit, Lanson. Finish your drink and we'll go into the study and talk. There wasn't much left in the glass, but I started to work on it. Martha asked, do you want one too, dear? She ran her hands through his hair. 
A moment ago, she'd been in my arms, and it didn't seem to concern her. Arkwright patted her hand. Too soon after lunch, my dear, he said in a fatherly tone. I expected to see the colonel at the Plymouth Club today, but he didn't show up. Noon is a busy time on a newspaper, I said. Sometimes he's tied up and can't make it. Don't tell me that the colonel personally supervises everything at your place, I grinned. No, not exactly, but he has his finger in most of the pies. I finished my drink and Arkwright turned to Mrs. Arkwright. We'll be in the study, Martha, he said. Martha smiled. Turning to me, she said, it was very pleasant meeting you, Mr. Lanson. I hope we'll see you again. She moved off to the door on the right while Arkwright and I went into the study. It was a large study, about a third the size of the living room, fitted with a long, highly polished desk, tiers of bookcases and other furnishings. I sat in a chair facing the desk. Colonel Tanner told you, I said, that we'd like to know something about this man, Proust. Arkwright nodded. I've met him several times. He asked, in behalf of the Citizens' Anti-Vice Committee, that the Gazette support his crusade against countywide corruption. Arkwright sniffed. I'll have to have a definition of corruption, he said. It means many things to many people. Well, I said, it's common knowledge that several gambling casinos are operating on the outskirts of town. There's gambling in town as well, said Arkwright. Not that I approve of it, you understand, but I'm not particularly concerned if fools want to throw their money away. That was pretty close to Colonel Tanner's attitude too, sir, I said. But the existence of these places shows laxity on the part of the county officers. And what has this got to do with Mr. Proust? I'm coming to that. When we go into a crusade, we want to know it's to correct something and not simply a political or some other kind of gambit in behalf of selfish aims. Meaning... To be perfectly frank, Mr. Arkwright, we've heard rumors that some people are dissatisfied with the way Proust carries out his reforms. Arkwright studied the surface of the desk in front of him. I said I knew Proust. I am also a member of the Citizens' Anti-Vice League. I've never questioned his sincerity. Perhaps these rumors about him are circulated by the hoodlums themselves. Then you'll go on record as saying you have faith in him? As far as I know, he's a zealous man, said Arkwright. I don't know everything about him. I'm a member of the board of trustees of the league, but I'm too busy to watch its affairs or check on Proust personally. Perhaps Martha can tell you more. She's well acquainted with Mr. Proust. She goes to all of the meetings. Perhaps you'd better talk to her. He rose suddenly, took three steps from his desk to the door and threw it open. Martha Arkwright was standing on the other side, twisting her fingers awkwardly. I was just coming to ask Mr. Lanson if he'd like to have lunch with me, she said, somewhat flustered. I haven't eaten yet. It was obvious that she'd been eavesdropping, but Arkwright turned to me, smiling graciously. We'd be glad to have you, he added. No, thanks, I said. Newspaper reporters can't eat lunches in leisurely fashion. I've got a deadline to make. I'm so sorry said Martha Arkwright, starting to turn away. Just a moment, dear, said Arkwright. Mr. Lanson wants to know what kind of a man Mr. Proust is. I told him you knew him better than I. Mr. Proust is a splendid man, she said enthusiastically. He's so dedicated to his work. He's immersed in it. Even a little overzealous sometimes, isn't he? Arkwright asked. 
But that's nothing against him. Vice is zealous too, and we might fight fire with fire. This from her. He's a paid investigator, isn't he, Mrs. Arkwright? He's the executive director, she said. Because he devotes full time to our activities, we pay him a small salary and his expenses. He's comfortably fixed besides. He had a small inheritance which Mr. Arkwright invests for him. I nodded as if I believed every word of it. Thanks, I said. Colonel Tanner will be much relieved to hear you trust him. Of course we trust him, said Arkwright heartily. Colonel Tanner is just too suspicious of people for his own good. But I suppose lots of unscrupulous scallywags do try to make a cat's paw of a newspaper. They do, I admitted. Thanks for your cooperation. Arkwright stood outside as I went through the door. He followed me to the front door, but before he opened it, he asked, Proust is aiming at the Hilltop Club, isn't he? I nodded. I think that's the main objective, he says. The county officers are deliberately closing their eyes to what goes on there. He still didn't open the door. Tell Colonel Tanner not to rely solely on my word or Martha's recommendation, he said in a low voice as Martha moved back to the rear of the house. It's been nice meeting you. Good day. Before I knew it, I was outside and the door had closed behind me. What in the devil was the idea of that last statement? Was Arkwright reversing himself or simply asking Colonel Tanner to get confirmation? The more I thought about it, the more I began to believe that maybe Arkwright was sending the boss a warning. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Kill Me With Kindness. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.